0: Oborn and Heller on Cricket, brought to you by the Chiswick Calendar.
1: Hello, it's Peter Oborn here, and today I'm in West London.
2: Hello, it's Richard Heller, here in South East London. First, I might just observe that from the um, window over the pavilion end at the famous Rubato Ground, I can see a red four-five-three bus moving in a very stately way in a northerly direction, and there's some uh, what appear to be cawing rooks on the deep midwicket boundary, which is a feeble and pallid imitation, I know, but I hope it will be recognised as one of our unique guest, Henry Blofeld. Henry, welcome to the Roboto
0: Ground and to West London. My dear thing, it's a great joy to be here. Thank you very much.
2: On that note of cawing rooks, Henry, I've been enjoying your book over and out, as well as um, your autobiography on TMS, and you quote there a passage about cawing rooks from Howard Marshall and um, the need to bring in the atmosphere of a real event at a cricket match. And I think that's what you've always consistently tried to do with the buses and the rooks and the and the spectators. How important is it, do you think, to commentators, particularly on radio, to convey the impression to listeners of being at a real cricket event? And how well do you think the commentators are doing now in matches without spectators?
0: Well, I think you've asked several questions there, Richard. I think, first of all... If you look at a or listen to a cricket match and you hear only what's going on in the middle, I think it all becomes rather two-dimensional. It doesn't really become very warm or human. I think what goes on around, if you don't paint the picture, I think you're not giving your listener really a, a fair look at what's actually happening. I think... I remember when I first did a test, not a test match, but a trial commentary. And this was in 1968 at the Oval. And I recorded two 20 minute sessions down the line. Brian Johnston was commentating on a county match when he wasn't working. And I then went into the BBC to listen to the recordings and um, uh, the, the, the assistant head of Outside Broadcast, bracket, sound, bracket, very important, Dan. and we sat and, and listened, and he said, I think you begin to paint the picture. And I said, what exactly do you mean by that? And he pointed to a picture on the wall behind him, and th- which was a, a perfectly ordinary picture of a field with some horses in it and wood at the side and sky at the top and obviously grass underneath. And he said, if you just talk about the horses, he said, you don't really tell the story. He said that this is only a composite picture because of the grass under the the horse's hooves, uh, the trees at the side, the sky above, and then the mount of the picture and then the frame. And he said, if you don't incorporate all that, you're not really giving a true picture. And that always stuck in my mind. And uh, Peter Baxter, I remember, who was our long term producer, uh, soon after I started a test match special, uh, when I think I, I sort of rather forgot that initially. And I was terrified when I first did it. Can you imagine with Arlott and Johnston and all the others there? And Peter said to me after I'd done about two test matches, he said, you know, Blaise, you can go over the boundary a bit more if you want. And I said, well, uh, that's absolutely splendid. And from then then on, I think I probably just (laughs) get over the boundary rather too much. But I feel that if you don't go over the boundary, the the commentary lacks warmth. Um, That is my own personal view. And I've always stuck to it. I, I don't want to comment on uh, what goes on today. I don't think that's my I think they do it jolly well. I agree buses and cranes and birds have gone into retirement. But um, I mean, so be it, that's the way that they, they do it today. The, the listenership goes on increasing, I think, enormously. So the proof of the pudding. And, and what more can I say? It's not the way I would do it. But if I came back and did it my way now, I would be enormously dated, I think. No, you wouldn't, Henry. We miss you.
1: I think I speak for everybody listening to this podcast and every cricket lover that we miss you very much indeed. You really elevated, enhanced, entertained, and gave a sort of joy of life to the way you set about your your commentary. And if you would say that, I would. um, I want you to tell me because there's something. There you are, a a twenty year old Blofeld young man and you page in your the first for life your autobiography in a, in a pinstripe suit with a bowler hat and an umbrella you're you're striding into climbwood benson londale the great merchant bank um, but you're not really that interested in merchant banking you cricket is on your mind and, and tell me tell, then you have this amazing moment you meet John Woodcock, the greatest, not only the greatest cricket writer since World War II, but I believe the greatest prose stylist since World War II. Tell
0: me, tell, tell us about how this, how it all came about. Well, it was an extraordinary situation. I was working in the city. I got kicked out of Cambridge after two years. I was not very good at exams. And the examiners won both our contests by an innings. And so <laughs> <laughs> And um, my family didn't know what to do with me. And a, and a rich uncle, my mother's brother came, came to rescue, who was uh, ran Robert Benson Lonsdale, which eventually um, merged with Time Wars. And so I was, I was signed up as a trainee for three years and I absolutely loathed it. I mean, I think if I get my hand out of the till, which I did, but I think if I'd stayed there, I probably probably earned a lot of money and all those bonuses and things, but my God, I'd have been bored. And anyway, by then I'd been made an jim swanton ran this uh creaky club jim swanton you wrote know, the t- daily telegraph right famous writer broadcaster and all the rest they're known uh, to many of his friends as pomponia's ego and <laughs> all that recently, I don't that's say.
1: after the jorox character
0: isn't it well indeed indeed yes. and uh, <laughs> jim was jim was it, Suck his chest out and everything else to it, didn't he? He had this lovely cricket club, the Arabs, which was nomadic. And people who'd got blues at and, and Cambridge and, and, and Oxford and people who were educated at Eton and Harrow and Winchester were really sort of in his sights. And so I qualified on about two counts and got in. And um, it was in nineteen six. I suppose I joined them in about 1950, the Arabs in about 1960, And in 1968, there was a cocktail party, uh, an Arab cocktail party get-together, at the old Hyde Park Hotel uh, in Knightsbridge. And I went along, and I was introduced to John Woodcock, who I'd never met before. And I, I really don't know why I'd not met him at various Arab games. And I may have done, but it never sort of. I know clicks anyway uh i knew me of course i knew who he was and we talked and he i he asked me about myself and i told him about the city and how ghastly it was and he said what do you want to do and i said well what i really want to do is write about cricket and we said i wouldn't advise that <laughs> <laughs> Wasn't the encouragement that i expected <laughs> anyway uh we went on talking and uh, i suppose after about an hour one of us left and I think it was probably him and he said to me, look I don't think I can do anything because it's not my job to sort of bring along new writers but if anything does happen of course I'll bear you in mind and he took my telephone number. Well the next day I got my car and drove to the city and came back to my little shack down by the in Chelsea and um, got there by know, 6 went in through the door and there was one of those, do you remember those virulent yellow colored telegrams <laughs> that you used to have in those days, the envelopes, and there was one on the carpet I picked it up, tore it open, and it said would I ring Long Parish, uh, or no, whatever it was, I think it was an, a number, and um, it, it signed Woodcock, so of course I rang immediately. And he told me that I think it was, I think, and this I may have got this wrong, but I think it was a chap called Yule Tiftley uh, Ewell, because his father was christened Sam, uh, christened Sam, and so he decided to complete the name when his son was born and christened him U-E-L, <laughs> <laughs> which was like he was a rugby football correspondent. He also wrote about kind of cricket and he was ill for some, I don't know what happened to him. And uh, if the Times badly wanted an, uh, someone to come and cover a match the next day and the day after, Wednesday and Thursday, Kent v. Somerset at um, the Batonball Garden Ground at Gravesend, long since dead, I'm afraid, as a county ground. It was a charming ground. And um, I said, yippee, and I went off that evening, there and then, to the Times, met the uh, sports editor, John Hennessy, collected my first press ticket, and uh, went down to uh, Gravesend the next day, and uh, covered, terrified. I rang, I remember ringing up uh, Laurie Wayman, he was, I think, Hennessy's deputy and said, how much do you want? And he said 550 words. And all I could think about was war and peace. Hmm. And uh, however, I eventually got there and um, you know, dictated it over the it was an awful business. And I had an absolutely sleepless night in an hotel in Rochester. Goodness knows why I didn't go back to London, but I didn't. It's only what, 20 odd miles away. And um, lo and behold, I got up in the morning. It was quite funny, this. And I went into a news agent about, oh, about six, it was, because I couldn't sleep. And said, hey, Have you got a copy of the Times? And he looked at me, sort said, I'm very sorrowfully. And he said, I'm afraid I've sold it, sir. <laughs> <laughs> that, was, that was rather a blow. But I went on a route march and eventually got my number and, you know, they'd printed everything I'd written. It's a
1: great rite of passage for every journalist, that, Henry, our first article. We all remember it.
0: Well, it was great. I mean, and then, you know, it happened the following weekend. I went down to Portsmouth, did two days out. And then I rang oh. them up the weekend after that and said, or, or the week after that, I said, have you got any work for me? And they said, yes, four days. So I rang up my office the following day and said, I've left. And they said, you <laughs> what? I've left. Can't do that. I said, yes, I can <laughs> And so one of the great merchant banking careers of the twentieth century grounding the minister. How all. how did you get away with presumably you have to
1: inform them that you were ill or something on the first Well
0: I did. I told I rang them up. And you're quite right. I left didn't tell you that when the first opportunity arrived, I rang them up and said I was ill. Then I rang up the following weekend, and I was ill again. They said, shouldn't you see a doctor? I said, what a good idea. <laughs> and then the third time, it it, it happened, as I have told you. And, and I rang them and said, I'm <laughs> gone. And I, it was a very hairy start. And the following winter, of course, 62 or 63, was the big freeze. It froze like mad. And so there was no football for me to go and watch. I watched school football, you see, for the times. And so uh, really, every crust of bread was preciously earned. But one got through it.
2: You're a great devotee of P.G. Woodhouse, as um, as we both are, and um, your banking career reminds me very much of Mike and of Smith in the city.
0: Do you remember yeah. Mr. Pickersdyke? Very well. He walked, yeah. walked behind the bowler's arm when mm. Mike was 97 not out, <laughs> and he was bowled.
2: <laughs> <laughs> That's right, a terrible, a, a terrible crime, yeah. But it reminds me your whole banking career reminds me of Mike and, and Smith's and indeed P. G. Woodhouse's. I think you I think you exaggerate perhaps your incompetence at banking, as as the great man did himself. But um like Mike, though in a different way, you were delivered from banking by cricket.
0: You say I don't tell the truth about my incompetence. Mr. Sutherland, who managed the client's ledger, under whose auspices I went for a fortnight would not agree with you. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, perhaps so. Uh, one thing that was very in your favour, shall I say, at that time was there was much more cricket coverage in newspapers and at least sporting coverage in newspapers at mm. that time, wasn't there? What advice would you give in, in modern conditions to a young Blofeld of today, trapped in merchant banking, who d- dreams of um, escape into cricket reporting?
0: Well, you see, I don't know if, if it's possible that someone like me could come along and get into uh, writing about cricket. There's very little coverage of county cricket. I don't know where they've got. I don't think they could come in a, 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 as a cricket writer. I think they might come in as a sports writer. But it, it, everything has so completely changed. I mean, in a way, I mean, look, if John Arlott came along now, they, or if Neville Cardus came along, they'd probably slam the door in his face. And I honestly, it's so difficult to know uh, what advice to give. I don't know. Uh, I mean, uh, I did it entirely by, by the back door in a way, talking to Johnny Woodcock, then going to the time, meeting John Hennessy, the sports editor. And then I was asked to write my first piece. That could never happen today. I can't think of any newspaper now that would take people on like that. I remember one problem I did have then, and at that first match I did at Gravesend there was one journalist I can't remember his name who asked me rather pointedly if I was a member of the National Union of Journalists which of course I wasn't and that was he held that against me for for the next every time we met Uh, You
1: had of course um, been a really outstanding schoolboy cricketer and really I think we're probably going to have a very serious career and you had this Terrible accident. I'm just going to to read out the way you describe the the outcome. You you have a you walk under a, a, a ironically enough maybe it explains your interest in buses later. Brian Johnston
0: always said that's why I had an attack of busitis.
1: Hmm. Yeah, I mean after your uh, encounter with the bus, which as you once said, the bus you, you you had a battle with the bus and the bus won. You know my skull had been broken much of the way round. The cheekbone had been squashed flat my jaw was somewhat the worse for wear a collarbone had taken quite a hammering and the perimeters of my right eye had seen better days a good deal of sewing had gone on and I remained unconscious for quite a while then they had to fish all the splinters of bone out of my brain and so on Uh, it it does it does it was Quite a, an event, they said. I mean, you had that—you were very nearly killed. Clearly,
0: oh yes. I mean, I think I was very lucky. I believe they used a new American drug on me. I, I think that was absolutely right. I... What, what I'm really
1: trying to get at here yeah. is—you yeah. 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 must have had. You had really—you you would have become a quite a glorious cricketer. You might well have played Test cricket for England instead of which, you know, it must have—it must have been worse. You, you write about it in a very philosophical stoical kind of way but it must have hammered you at the time well you know i i
0: it's very kind. i don't think I, I don't know i was that necessarily that good i had one or two rather lucky things i had a lucky go at lords and i played in 56 when i was 16 for the public schools against combined services when we didn't before lunch on the first day we were 71 for six and I did actually manage to slog 104 not out. I'm not quite certain how I did it. Stu- Roman Sabareau and uh, Stuart Leary, both uh, bowled both there, there in different day breaks and I went dancing down the wicket and we were playing uh, we were playing almost in the grandstand you know we, it was a minor match we were at a very short boundary there um, yeah and everyone thought I was probably rather better than I was I don't know I really don't know I think if I was good at anything I was probably better as a wicketkeeper than a batsman but you know funny enough when I had the accident and came around I was only what when I ha- had I was only 17 and my, I, I, life was still a great adventure and when I came round, it never occurred to me that anything really nasty had happened. And it was only when I got onto the cricket field and tried to hook a ball, because I hooking was a, it was a shot I played a lot. And I couldn't, I simply saw it short, couldn't signal my uh, had down to my feet, and I just simply couldn't move. And I suddenly realized yes, that, it, that it was a different playing field. But I don't think I ever spent my life thinking, gosh, if only. I, all I wanted to do was get on, and, and I, what, Cambridge meant getting a blue, and I, I got a bad blue on a, in a bad side. I, I wasn't I, I wasn't. Well, you remind it. me a little bit of the now, Mataji, you
1: know, who was going to be the greatest cricketer of all time, pretty well, and then he had his terrible car accident and lost an eye, and went, still played a very distinguished career for India as a Test cricketer. But nevertheless, he would have been incredible. I mean, it, you, went, you, get, you get a Cambridge blue
0: despite the fact you've had this terrible accident. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, probably that much. I I played it a bit in 58 when Ted Dexter, your previous guest of yours, was captain. And I didn't do well. He and I put on just about 100 against Lancashire. I remember Brian Statham and Ken Higgs. uh, Roy Tattersall, Malcolm Hilton. That was in 1958. And I got 44 and hit over a full toss from Tattersall. Just flicked my legs down. Uh, But I didn't get in. I wasn't quite good enough then. And all there wasn't a gap for me. And the following year, we weren't a very good side. And I got in right at the end. I managed to... Sl- and then I slogged 100 for um, Cambridge against the MCC at Lords, uh, which was a fun game because Dennis Compton was playing for the MCC and made 71 of the most ethereal runs I've ever seen. He was only on one leg in those days. He had his kneecap removed. Uh, but he, it was amazing, the strokes he played. I never forget that.
2: Henry, I'd like to quote another, uh, something you wrote later about the accident. I think when you were in your your autobiography, I think it was uh, your feeling, you were writing about uh, your feelings when you were in your 40s. And you said, anyway, my own feeling is that the accident made me more insecure than I need have been, because at an important point in my life, the only thing I'd been any good at had been taken away from me. Uh, I'd been left with precious little to hold up and show the world. And I badly needed the confidence of my own success at something. A lot of cricketers are devastated, aren't they, by the end of their careers, for whatever reason. And um, cricket has a very important role, I think, doesn't it, in the emotional life of cricketers. You obviously built another life partly involving cricket with you. What advice would you give now to people well, whose cricket careers are terminated early or
0: curtailed early? Oh. well I, I, I I'm lucky I, I, my advice would be if it is advice it may just be the way I was born I've always dealt with with tomorrow and never with yesterday and when i when I retired from the commentary box uh, three years ago it never I' never sp- spent my time thinking gosh I wish I was there. I've got so many other things happening. It was exciting. When I left the city and came into journalism, I was writing for the Freelance for the Times. All I wanted to do was win doing what I was, to get to get, get 100 in from the press box rather than in the middle. It never really occurred to me that I might have been in the middle. I was now doing something that I wanted to win at. And um, I mean, I just think that you, you simply got to go for it. And it's no good pursuing uh objectives in your mind that are impossible it's no good worrying about yesterday because yesterday done and gone get on with today and, and and plan for tomorrow and that that's really what i've al- always done and i've never uh therefore looked looked at what happened what's gone on behind me and regretted it particularly i mean yeah for certain things you're sorry that you you behave stupidly or whatever but not, there's been no sort of lasting thing in, 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 in that way. I mean, talking about regretting things, I, I regret actually that I went up to Cambridge when I did, because having had that accident, I probably should have had a year off. And when I went up there, I would, the examiners wouldn't have found me quite so easy to beat. I think, <laughs> yeah. And, you know, and I might have done my three years and all the rest, but um, it, that was the way it was. And so once it's the way it was, get on with it. You have this famous
1: persona, uh, and it's it's a very engaging persona. But I I've read a lot of your books, in particular, I think the Packer affair. But in fact, your autobiographies, you're a much more serious figure than uh, you let on. Your book on Packer was a was a small masterpiece of investigative journalism, uh, or at any anyway, rate, clear analytical reporting. And would you accept that your Kind of slightly Woodhousey and Bertie Worcesterish public persona
0: is actually hiding a great deal. I suppose it probably is. Uh, what I wonder is whether I it's whether I'm hiding it consciously. I find it rather it rather fun. And I've never sort of thought that I must behave stupidly, extravagantly in an exigeant way in order to hide something, in order to cover something up. I mean, I wear I quite lately, late, well I say quite lately, in the last uh, 10, 15 years, I've worn uh, brightly colored clothes, but I think it's rather fun. I've always, I slightly her in that direction, and I married my lovely, lovely wife, Valeria, my, and, and Valeria is Italian, and was huge in the fashion industry, and brought color into my life in in, in every sense, and she... Uh, sort of insisted on mother's coloured linen shirts and jerseys and shoes, and it was all part of it, you know. And I, I suppose, in a way, I've sort of lived up to it a bit. But I don't think I've done it frankly, consciously, and deliberately. And that it's not all part of a plot to set out and prove that I'm actually rather more amusing than perhaps I am, or whatever. It's just the way it's happened. Tell, tell us about your influences, because you kick off as a as a
1: journalist and obviously you're making your, your way. But uh, to what extent was P.G. Woodhouse's Bertie Wooster an influence on your language and writing? Well, my father, you see, was... Um, did you ever, ever, ever come across my father? No, I, I have met your brother, I think, the judge, but not your father. Yeah.
0: My father was an absolute display. He was the ultimate epitome of a, of, of a, of a country gent. I mean, he was six foot six and he had a mustache and wore a monocle. And uh, he was a great figure. He and I were never frightfully close. I think he, I often saw him looking at me. I could see going through his mind how the hell does this chap even related remotely to me, (laughs) let alone a son of (laughs) a but, but um, John was very really much more his his cup of tea I think in a way as a I as even the oldest son, which was quite appropriate uh, whereas I was very much younger and, and kicked all, over all the traces i always I was always born people often say to me, "Did you have elocution lessons? Good heavens, no, I spoke exactly as I always have done. My father had a wonderful voice actually I mean I remember him very well reading the lesson. That, in church on um, every Sunday and, and my brother had a very has a very good voice and I think and so is my sister funnily enough who's 91 and uh, and flourishing and um, I, I think that is just something that I've inherited um, no I mean um, <laughs> it was Del Mount, who in cold what called cold cream he wrote that wonderful old biography didn't he and he uh, described he said the only thing about blurs because he and I were at school together at Seindale and he said uh, that he's become, uh, the older gets, even more plummy. Well, well, actually, the thing about thirty months, it is, it is, it's very striking
1: indeed. And it it's also a biography, which is, I greatly recommend. He actually has you. He remembers you commentating all by yourself, aged about nine years old, I think, a freckled, beaky-nosed boy with a hair the colour of dark tan shoe polish. Uh, is sitting by himself behind the commentary, giving a commentary on some game of cricket, which he said was very good. But you say so you sort of you, had you
0: already consciously decided to become a commentator at the age? No, do you know the extraordinary thing is, uh, Peter, uh, I never at any stage. I thought I was going to become a commentator. And the only reason I did I became a journalist and I, and, and in 1962 I, as a freelance at the Times. And I worked for The Guardian, I worked at the Observer, and I worked for various papers. And it was in 1968, early in the summer, I was at the Oval. And do you remember John Thickness? Who Very wrote, much so, yes. Mm-hmm. I was a colleague colleague of his on the Evening Standard, actually. Yep. Yes, indeed. And he wrote the Evening Standard. He suddenly said to me one day, have you ever thought about commentating? And I didn't commentating, would help. "No, i not, what should I do? Oh, and he said, what you want to do is write to a chap called uh, Head of Outside Broadcasts, at um, BBC, Robert Hudson. And uh, who was a fine Greek commentator and a rugby commentator. And um, so I did precisely that. And he wrote back saying, yes, um, well, you better have to do some trial commentaries for me. So sent me along to the Oval to, to do a couple of trial commentaries. And, and, and that was how it all began. I, but until Thickers said to me, Blowers, have you ever considered talk, uh, commentating? It never occurred to me that I might join TMS, that I might become a commentator.
1: There's a legendary uh, story about Thickness uh, at the Evening Standard. I was told it by an exasperated news editor. When uh, the England cricket team were in India when the tragic event occurred and Mrs. Gandhi was assassinated, and the only person, any member of staff out there was Thickness. And so they filed up, they, they rang up Thickness and, and it said, uh, please, Thickness, will you file a, a report on the murder of Mrs. Gandhi? And there was a long delay and eventually a, a reply came through. The English cricket team were very upset to learn that
0: Mrs. Gandhi had been killed. <laughs> that was his report. <laughs> <laughs> Jonas and I, this was in the 67-8 uh, tour of the West Indies Cadreys tour, which rather surprisingly we won against Overside. Um, at, at Port of Spain in the time of the first test, Jonas and I had been at the ground before the match and we went back to Queen's Park Hotel, up these sort of steps into this colonnaded entrance. It was very, very sort of colonial and everything else. And John Thickness was there. Well, Thickness let it be known, or it was known, that he'd acquired a girlfriend, but he, she was kept under great wraps, and no one knew anything about her at all. And, and in this entrance hall, there were huge lots of wickerwork chairs and everything, and right at the back of the staircase leading down to the bar were two people, Thickers, and a very, very, very beautiful girl, I mean 11 out of 10. She was absolutely spectacular. And so Donners and I, being quite polite, went, 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 went over and towards them to greet them, and then Thickers got up. And he said, Donners, I don't really like you to meet a net. And as Donners shook a net by the hand, he said, my goodness me, Thickers, he said, every time you've been telling me over the last week you we're going to have a nest, he said, I thought you meant you were gonna go play cricket. <laughs> 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 and it was a very difficult one for her to come back on. Oh, <laughs> he was quite
1: quick, wasn't he, Johnson? He often. Yes indeed. It must have been a joyful thing to comment on. Well, Johnson
0: was was was. was Funnily enough, Jonas was never a terrific friend of mine in the commentary box. The chap who was really a help to me, whom I absolutely adored, was John Uh, Arlott. John Arlott, I never forget him. The first test I ever did, I'd done some one days. Uh, I was very frightened of Test Match, all this business of talking when the rain and through the rain and all that. I was frightened. It was an Old Trafford. And... At the end of the first day, it was a terrible box in those days at the stretch of the end of the ground. And I came down those awful wooden stairs and Arnold was waiting for me and put his hand around my shoulder. I said, Henry, he said, that was very good. He said, uh, let's have dinner tonight. He said, the one, two little things I could put, probably help you with. <laughs> and we he, we had dinner and he didn't, he didn't, did he did it by suggestion he was not, throwing it at me and he always looked after me and would come up to me suddenly in the middle of a day, is it going all right? And you know, and you knew that you could say if it wasn't going all right and he wouldn't either repeat it or mind. And I I loved others, but Jonas was never, I remember saying Jonas on many occasions or a number of occasions at the end of a, something one had done in the box, was that all right, Jonas? Oh, it's not for me to say, he would always say that, he'd never actually say, well done. It's interesting what you say about John
1: Arlott. We've heard from so many other people. Who was the, was it Pat Murphy? Richard telling us that Arlott gave him a day and a half when yes. he started out commentating, yeah. just taking him through it, just really mm. helping him, being incredibly welcoming. And Duncan Hamilton says the same thing about Arlott. He, when he started off in the press box when he was, you know, twenty years old, Arlott came over, just helped. He was
0: obviously a, and now you've told us the same thing. It's a lovely man. Yes, he was. He was. A, he was a lovely man, and he, he was sort of. He thought I was an indelibly and indubitably and fastened to the establishment, whom he hated. But somehow he made an exception with me, and we always became. We were always good friends, and um, I, I I I really loved all He was um, absolutely splendid, and I'm. So pleased that Arthur Mayley, who is the, from my great hero of all cricketers, um, past, present or, or future, drew a wonderful portrait, a little portrait of Arlett, which I've just acquired. It was part of Arlett's collection, which was sold oh, off. Yes.
2: Oh, nice. this is a very very good caricaturist. Arthur Maley, wasn't it?
0: Don't oh, it? brilliant. I've, yeah. I've got about yeah. 60 of him. Oh. obvious things. Wow. I've got a huge collection, and, I, and this one I'm thrilled with. About. Uh, while we're on the subject of Arlott, your,
1: uh, your autobiography contains a previously unknown poem by John Arlott. I dine out with all the best people, and I thought I had made quite a hit. I cannot understand why mere cricket reporters will say I'm such a big journalist. <laughs> and this was um, a present, it put on the... Uh, what, when Swanton sort of emerged... Uh, from the from outside into the box at the close of play one day to give his famous summary, Arlott had by mistake left that poem there for <laughs> for Swanson to read.
0: Yeah, <laughs> it was very 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 well done, and Swanson didn't enjoy it. I can promise you, <laughs> I can still see it. But that all that said,
1: he was obviously Swanson was a fantastic influence and asset to you in your, and particularly oh, when you were a young yeah. writer. <laughs>
0: no he was not he was not an influence to me at all i never did got any job through swanton swanton befriended quite a number of young journalists he never actually helped me until I was quite well established. I went to the West Indies in 678, Colin Cowdery's tour, uh, which was the tour on which that story of Johnston and thickness happened. And I did in fact work for the Telegraph. I did games when Swanton was not there. And Swanton therefore uh, signed me up without payment as his ADC, and I had to sit next to him in the press box, which was a, which was a, a, an undertaking. And when he when he went to the bar in the middle of the day, I had to make notes as, as to what happened, and then was sub- subjected to a very rigorous cross-examination when he got back, which, which caused great merriment around the press box. But I didn't enjoy it myself very much.
2: Yeah, fagging duties it sounds you, like
0: you, with the fagging absolutely. And the, there was a time when we had a grinding row in the press box at St. Minor Park because he wanted the he wanted the door sh- door opened for air. And when I was sitting just by the door, when my, the door was opened, I couldn't the, the paper in my typewriter blew around to such an extent I couldn't use it. And so we we I, we had a row, and I remember Ian Wooldridge supporting me, and um, that went on for some time. Uh, he, he was difficult, Swanson. I mean, you had to. I mean, I mean, he, he was called Pompey's Ego by some of his friends, and he behaved as such. He, having said that, he was a terrific friend to cricket. Cricket probably had no greater friend. I don't think he wrote a, half as well as a lot of people. I mean, Woodcock was wonderful, but Swanton was ponderous, wasn't he? And but 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 Swanton established a great position for himself in the game. He founded the Arabs. He. He became a sort of demigod in the press box, and I—demigods are always dangerous, aren't they? And and I think Swanson, in a way, was dangerous, but I think also there was an awful lot of good that came out of came from him. I agree. Now, talk about the, the cricketer, uh,
1: the cricket writer you knew best and right off with most love is, I think, the finest cricket writer uh, uh, since Cardus, and that is John Woodcock. What
0: is amazing. He's, I mean, Wooders, when you think he's tiny, he's very small. He's the most cheerful. He's my my greatest friend in life. I've been on many, many, many tours with, with Wooders. We've done some extraordinary things. We've drunk far into the night on occasions. We've, oh goodness me. Uh, Johnny, I, I mean, I always think of Johnny as a writer having one great attribute, which is the ability to look at at, at a, a cataclysmic event. Be it happening on the field of play or in in the committee room, and and putting it into a different long term perspective, uh, before nightfall when he wrote the piece on that very day. So on the next day, people read a considered opinion which no one else really was able to give. He was a wonderful judge, watcher of a day's cricket. He always saw. I sat next to him many times in the press box, and yet and and. He would be the first person I would read the next day, and always, 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 there were a couple of points that Wooders made which I didn't even see, and I was not aware of. He was a very, very minute watcher, clever watcher, a good watcher of the game of cricket, for which I admired him enormously. He was also such a fastidious
1: master of the English language. It really was oh, yes. Fowler's English. Uh, set out in, in, in modern English usage. Indeed. Uh, and sort uh, of evil and warlike precision and understanding. But yeah, I, I want to know about this great, amazing thing you did with John Woodcock, your great friend. Your journey in a Rolls Royce uh, out... Uh, in
0: 1977, I think it was for the Pakistan India. 76. 76. Third uh, 3rd of October 1976, we left Lockup Garages, almost underneath the Albert Hall, <laughs> and um, in a Silver Cloud roller was it? A um, Silver Ghost. Uh, silver. Yeah, 1921. Uh, it was a wonderful claret coloured machine. Wooders and I, the previous year, had been in Australia watching West Indies play Australia, and we were in Perth. And we watched an extraordinary test match there, which the West Indies won. And when uh, Roy Fredericks hooked Lily's first ball of the match for six, I'll never forget it. And um, we were staying at the Well Club and we had dinner. And I, and I said to Woodhouse halfway through dinner, with any luck, we'll be in India this time next year. And he said, you know Blowers? He said, the last time we went to India, uh, Mellor's, that's Michael Melford, Uh Jonas Brown Johnson and I were going to drive. And I said, why didn't you? She said, the wives didn't think it would be a very good idea. Well, neither widows nor I had any such encumbrance at the time. So we made a unilateral decision that we were going to do it. And before dinner had finished, we'd made our first selection, who was Judy Casey, who was a really sp- splendidly spirited girl who lived in Sydney. And in fact, Valeria and I stayed with her for a fortnight in in Sydney last last February. She's remained one of my my greatest friends. And then gradually we picked up um, um, Adrian Little, farmer of some some prosperity in Hampshire, collected old cars. He produced the old gal, the the Rolls, a wonderful car. Presumably he knew how to mend it. Well, yes. Every week he spent a day servicing it. And um, it never put a foot wrong, except we, had, we did actually have to have some spare tires flown out to Tehran, uh, as one does. What I love about this trip is here you have uh,
1: Blofeld, Woodcock, a Hampshire farmer, a Rolls-Royce, driving through, you know, some of the biggest trouble spots in the world, Tehran, Kabul, Herat. You'd have gone through Kandahar, I imagine. Yeah. Uh, then, uh, and uh, this is so much out of the Lady Vanishes. Richard, who were those two old English—the buffers in the
0: Hitchcock? You're thinking dogs?
2: of Charters and Cordicut, Basil Radford and Norton Wayne.
0: Oh, yeah. We did also, in fact, have another car because Michael Bennett, a friend of mine from my club in London, came and bought a, a Rover, a new two litre Rover, known as the Yellow Peril. And so there were five of us, and there were two cars. Um, and there were four men and Judy, and it was the, it was 46 days and nights. It was a, a, the great adventure of my life. My goodness, it was hairy at times too. When you got, I, I mean, driving down to the to the Bosphorus in Istanbul was was plain sailing. But once we got into Asia, it became difficult uh, finding petrol. We had gallons in tank in cans on the running board. Um, finding food, finding hotels. And um, it, 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 we spent a week, I remember, in Tehran, which was, which was great fun. Played a game of cricket in Tehran, uh, which was also fun. <laughs> and uh, then in, in, we went up to the Caspian and at Caviar. We went to Mashhad, the holy city in eastern Iran, where my silly little phrase, my darrow thing, was born. <laughs> and um, then through into uh, Afghanistan, Herat, and uh, Kandahar, Kabul, and the Khyber Pass. Uh, down to Delhi, and eventually to um, Taj Mahal Hotel in Bombay.
2: In a way, Henry, you were just in time, weren't you? You did this in 1976. Um, shortly afterwards, the Shah fell in Iran with the Iranian Revolution, and um, shortly after that, Afghanistan had a Russian invasion and a civil war. So in a sense, you sort of did it just in time. When you went through Afghanistan, did you have any thought that it might become a cricket
0: nation? No, absolutely none. All I remember about Afghanistan was Chicken Street in Kabul. I went and bought the most extraordinary clothes, (laughs) including a very, very, very good um, suede jacket, which I think I still have somewhere. I mean, I couldn't get into it. Um, No, it it, it was extraordinary. And what was such fun were the people you met. It was a long distance. That whole road was a long distance lorry, Grand Prix, really. And these lorry drivers, that, that was what made it so dangerous. And you were going up, high into the mountains and you looked down and you saw lorries that had just tumbled down lying on their side uh, three or four hundred yards down. It was, it was quite hairy. Mm-hmm. I remember one drive we'd set off in the morning from Tehran to uh, Babolsar on the, on the Caspian, through those mountains. And my goodness me, how Adi got the car. Adi drove every inch of the way himself for roles. It was a staggering wow. performance. Wow. And how we got there, I, I don't know, it was amazing. But it, my goodness me, it was fun. And we met some amazing people. Uh, in, I, I think the greatest chap we met, but funnily enough, who kept on turning up was a Sikh in the most wonderful turbans and an absolutely unending supply of black-label Scotch whisky. Mind you, we were sponsored by Long John Scotch whisky, who paid us, uh, we had four sponsors. Long John paid us in cash, in kind as well as cash, which was a help. So we had several 40-ounce bottles of our own strapped to the running board as well. (laughs)
2: Yes. And it was, I think also very useful in um, awkward moments and customs, wasn't it, Henry in your-
0: Oh yes, we did indeed. I remember the, the most difficult customs was Iran into Afghanistan, which was presided over by a 14 or 13 year- old boy. and we were warned about this because we, when we got our visas from the Afghan embassy up by Hyde Park, we were warned that the, 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 that, that post was run by this boy. And he was extraordinary. He just picked his fingers and said, go there and do that. They, everyone did everything. And in, in the end, he came and had a look at the rolls. And we left. We had several flasks. They sent us a couple of cases of rather handsome looking flasks, which held about half a bottle of whiskey. And we lay one or two around. And we said, his eyes lit up. He said, these for me. And we didn't say you're too young for that. He, we said yes, yes, yes. And he took about three of them and waved us through to the absolute fury of lorry drivers who've been waiting there for weeks. <laughs> wow. So
1: Henry, this is of course the um, the hip. You're on the hippie trail by now. This is when everybody else has got every other Western visitor has got long, long hair and beards and all this sort of stuff and funny backy stuff Samples, in their back yeah. pocket. Uh, what, what were you? Uh, I did
0: imagine you were in that kind of sartorial order. I wore my flat cap, my shooting cap. I wore the sort of equivalent of, of a barber. There weren't barbers in those days. Now I look exactly like I do now, really. <laughs> I'm not quite. I wasn't wearing colourful, but jerseys, I mean, no. But what I do remember, one thing we did do, the hippie trail, when we got to Kandahar, a fearful rogue approached us and wanted to sell us something, which we felt in the end we had to buy. And we uh, it was we thought tobacco and started to smoke it. In fact, I think it was probably the only time I ever smoked an, an unpermitted substance. I remember being terribly ill the <laughs> next well, day. It, was, uh, it was, uh, was, permitted,
2: was permitted there, wasn't it?
0: It probably was legal.
2: Was it was permitted. It? it was legal in <laughs> Afghanistan, which is why it was so attractive as a destination for many well, people.
0: Well, there we were. I mean, Wooders, Wooders, the next day, was seen to be believed. I mean, <laughs> Wooders became, was called the junkie, I think, from then on. <laughs> but frightfully <laughs> funny. Anyway, then you uh, came out across, down, down through the
1: Khyber Pass, and of course, uh, straight at, bang, bang straight into Jeffrey Boycott and his lot.
0: Well, yes, it was Tony Gregg was captain. We were actually, I must tell you one thing, the Kabul Gorge, uh, which is nearer Kabul than Peshawar, is a much prettier than, and more lovely than the Khyber Pass, funnily enough. Um, that's always quite, I mean, people who go there always ought to be aware of that. They go into Afghanistan, go to the Khyber and think how wonderful. But if they do go on, they see something even more beautiful, I think. Um, know we went. I tell you something very funny, which I'd never forget. When we drove, that I can't remember what the village is called in the Kaiba, where you can, there's nothing in the world you can't buy for Tuppence halfpenny, from gold ingots upwards and downwards. Buy atom bombs there, I think probably. And and we um, there was a, a test match going on between India and New Zealand, and an extraordinary, oh, I say extraordinary, a chap who played a very few test matches for New Zealand. P- I think it was Peter Petherick, took three wickets and four balls. And I remember hearing about it on the radio as we drove through the Khyber Pass. It's one of those sort of silly little things that's never left me.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: We won the first three tests. And the first one in Delhi, John Lever, took about 12 wickets. Do you remember his first test match? Uh-huh. And um, uh, that's right. Then we won it. In- we won in Calcutta, where Tony Gregg, who had slogged 100, uh, not very quickly, but against Thompson and Lily at Brisbane. Thompson and Lily, the year before, when they came together for the first time, it was one of the most heroic innings of all time. Made 109, I think it was, in Calcutta in seven hours, mm-hmm. and two more contrasting innings you couldn't wish to see. And Roger Tolchard played his first test match, keeping wicked in that game, and made 60. And there were many people who scored hundreds in their first test, and they didn't play such valuable or important innings as Tolchard did on that day. And we won there, and then we went to Madras, and, or Chennai, I should say, and, and we won there too, so we were 3-0 up um, after three test matches. And uh, then went on to Bangalore, and uh, where things didn't go quite so well. The Indian um there was a bit of strange umpiring there, but that we'll leave that for another day. <laughs> oh. <laughs>
2: Henry, can I ask you a question over your whole career? You've done many interviews with um, with cricketers on the pitch and indeed off the pitch over the years. Is it your impression that cricketers are getting more, as it is of mine, that cricketers are getting more boring, or are giving certainly giving more boring answers to questions than
0: they used to do? I think they're probably giving now answers that they think they should give. Mm. Um, I mean, I I always found Graham Gooch. But I mean, I remember I, whenever Graham Gooch scored a hundred, you'd say, "Well played, Gooch." Oh, it's nice to score a hundred. He'd always like, come out with that regular talkback. Um, no, you didn't. When you interviewed players in the old days, you could have a discussion with them. But you see, there was a, another reason for this, which I think I ought to say. When I first started writing and writing about cricket rather than commentating and touring. The players and the press all travelled in the same aeroplane. They stayed in the same hotel every evening after a day's test cricket. I remember in the West Indies in six seven eight, you'd stand at the bar. People like Graveney, Barrington, Dolly Vera, Jim Park they all talk about the day. And as a young journalist, you learn so much. You realise that so much went on that you didn't see. Then, of course, you see in both of them, Daryl Befe. And got up to one or two tricks. And which, um, oh, that splendid chap, um, I can't think of his name, who edited The Sun, um, and who owned, for a short time, TalkSport. Um, what was his name? Kelvin McKenzie. Kelvin McKenzie. No, McKenzie. McKenzie, that's right. Edited The Sun. And, of course, journalists came out to see what... Entirely, what the players were doing off the field in their spare time. So a plate glass window came down between the press and the players, and I think I think at that point, players and press found it hard, hard to have a conversation. The the players felt that they they, they were being interviewed and they had to say what they should say, and that was it. That's yet another example
1: of how Kelvin Mackenzie has improved British public life. Um, it does remind, me of, uh, <laughs> I it does remind it. me of Johnny Woodcock when I, uh, ha- he told me this, that when I was writing up researching my book on Basil D'Oliveri, and, and Basil got up to a few things on the sixty-seven-eight tour of West Indies, uh, and the, mm. um, and the news, Sunday Times news desk rang him up and, and asked, and he told them to get lost. Uh, uh, that was Johnny Woodcock for you.
0: Well, absolutely. Johnny wasn't well, He wasn't coming into that one. I think Baz. You can understand. I, I've got. I have to come out in defence of Basil Olivera now, who I, was a great man. And when you think what he had done, and this was his first tour, I think, and of course it went to his head a bit, and and, and he, he he was a, a little bit more thirsty than he should have been. Uh, what he actually lacked, I don't think Colin Carter, captain, handled him very well. Quite honestly and Les Ames was the manager. Les was very much in Collins' camp, and I, I think, had there been a firm manager, I don't think Basil Olivera would have got up to half the things he did, and I think he was unlucky in a similar way that Fred Truman was unlucky in 53-4 uh, in the West mm-hmm. Indies when uh, Len Hutton was captain and Charlie Palmer was player-manager. They didn't handle Fred well then and um, and things got out of control, and I don't think Colin and Les really handled Basil very cleverly.
2: Going back to boring interviews, um, Henry, do you think corporate sponsorship is a factor that's come into it? The cricketers are now paid to represent this and that, and um, they don't want to embarrass the sponsor. They're given a sort of rather bland script to um, yes, I mean I think this out. goes
0: exactly to what you were saying about whether players are rather more boring when you interview them today. At the end of the day's play, a player from the England camp comes over to the press box to be interviewed. He's been primed by all the media experts in the England dressing room as to what he's going to say. And yes, of course, they don't go off script and you can't blame them because, I mean, he who pays the piper calls them too, isn't it? Simple as that. And they're not going to upset the sponsor if they possibly can But yes, of course, I mean, the the sponsorship has had a a bad effect in this way.
2: I don't know if you've noticed, Henry, but when, when a cricketer prefaces a remark with, to be perfectly honest with you, something incredibly boring is always going to come out afterwards.
0: Either incredibly boring or incredibly dishonest. <laughs> One or the other,
2: yeah. D- dishonest, d- dishonest is better, Yes. Yeah.
0: When a politician mm-hmm. says, clearly, such
1: and such is the case, you know that it's going to be a load of obfuscation and muddle.
0: <laughs> a murky, a, a murky of you, yeah,
2: yeah. Henry, at least before COVID, you were dividing your time quite a lot between Norfolk and Menorca. And I um, uh, must ask, have you watched any... Cricket at the Menorca Cricket Club, which is very popular and very
0: successful. Hmm. I watch a huge amount because I'm good. great friends with both David Sheffield and Andrew Manners, who started it in the early 90s. Hmm. It is amazing what they have done with what was originally seven small fields with little brick walls, with all stone walls, all of which have come down. All the stones have been cleared. They did it almost themselves by hand. It hmm. is simply amazing. Have you been there, Richard?
2: Very much so because um, I went there before as the cricket club because I have to say that land used to belong to my mother. My, oh, really? my mother owned the house that uh, is owned the adjacent house and it was part of her field. Oh, I begged lovely. her to set up a cricket pitch um, and, and, but she wouldn't
0: do that. You drive in, you, well, you just park outside and they've got that lovely little pavilion they've built mm. at the bar there and seats all around the ground. Absolutely lovely. Totally. And no, I'm I'm a tremendous supporter. And in fact, last year when I was 80, we had two matches out there to celebrate my 80th birthday. We were doing it again this year when I was 81. But of course, COVID got in the way, and we didn't. And I'm hoping we're going to do it next year. Well,
2: very much but I so.
0: think it's absolutely hmm. wonderful. And okay, the crickets are not a particularly high standard, and the Menorcan side is mostly estate agents. But fair enough, they have tremendous fun. They love it and I think it's terrific and it's very well supported, not least by a chap called Graham Byfield, who's a wonderful uh, draftsman, who kept wicket for them for years, and also, which I've just discovered, I was talking to him on the telephone the other day, he kept wicket for Canada. Now, I bet you don't know many international, many, many, many international Canadian stars which is lovely. And I don't know. I've
2: i played with him. I didn't I, you know I didn't know that about him. I've played with him quite often. Um, Isn't he a lovely I mean, man? Definitely. Yep.
0: Mm. A really lovely man. And of course, yeah. Andrew Manners is splendid too. And Sheffield. I mean, Sheffield was quite a, a reasonable curricular too, wasn't he? He scored yes. a lot of runs when he Bradley. Mm-hmm. And has had a great part to play in the whole thing. Yeah. And the other person I love there, who I see quite often, Tony Hatch. Mm-hmm. Um the um well who wrote all Petula Clark songs, didn't yeah. he? Yes. I mean down, Downtown Hatch. Mm. I remember the hardest thing I ever did when I first went when I went out there about twenty five years ago to make a speech for the Menorcan Creek Club. Uh, the warm up act was Tony Hatch on a piano, singing downtown and all the others. Mm-hmm. And after that there was nowhere to go. It was the most yeah. difficult thing I've ever done in my life.
2: Oh. Yeah, tough act to follow, he-
1: Henry. A little while ago, you were mentioning in approval terms, Peter Baxter, who helps you into in your early uh, years in Test Match Special. I have harboured dark thoughts about Baxter because uh, I remember about 15 years ago, word spread, it reached me, that there was an attempt to dislodge you from Test Match Special. This was in the sort of about 2004, I think. Uh, and uh, I, re- I heard about it in the Channel 4 box, which was then sponsoring Cricket. I uh, was sitting next to Peter Basil, Jeff, and I sit, and Baxter was trying to evict you from from your seat at TMS. And uh, between us, I think it was my idea, actually, we launched the BBBB BB campaign. It was bugger Baxter, bring back blowers. And we were successful. I launched it in the evening standard. It was a campaign uh, and we wrote derogatory things about Baxter. And we said, how splendid you were. This went on for some time and in due course. The danger was lifted. Now, given that Baxter tried to stab you in the back fifteen years ago, why did you become such pals with
0: him later? Well, I've always been quite friends with Baxter. I actually don't I don't know that that I believe that story. And I don't disbelieve you, but I have never had evidence that Backers was in any way trying to get rid of me. There may have been others doing it and, and back that Backers may have been in a difficult position, but I don't actually think that he was uh was was doing it i really don't he wasn't Um, standing up to these evil forces of darkness who wanted to i I, I mean i i i'd suppose there was a time when i i don't know did i become rather callous things i had one rather bad year i seem to remember I, i i think what was boring was i found myself being used less and less but whether they were actually going to get rid of me, I never really discovered. Maybe they were, and in which case, Peter, thank you very much. Um, I mean, I, life without TMS in those days would have been perfectly awful. But, but no, Packers has always been a good friend. We did 200 stage shows together, he and I. They didn't amount to very much, but we did it. And they it, were very popular. Yeah. great fun. And uh, I see a lot of him now, and, and we ring each other up endlessly and laugh about the old days. And um, I, I, I think Peter actually was a very good producer of Test Man Special. Uh, leaving aside what he may or may not have done to me, I think he, I think uh, uh, the progress of TMS over the years owes, owes a great deal to him. Actually, um, I really do. I mean, he he, he took over from uh, Michael Tuke Hastings. In 1974, Michael Duke Hastings was OK, except he loathes cricket, which is not really <laughs> you know, the, the, be, the best thing for a chap produced TMS. On the AI. other hand,
1: Mr Duke Hastings, hired Arliss and Johnson and Flo, uh, you know, it's, he he made some very, very good choices. And I think one of the criticisms I'd have of TMS now is that he has too many ex-cricketers and too few people with really great broadcasting experience, like... like uh, great Arlet, like wonderful Brian Johnson, like yourself. And it's just got a little, it's lost lost some of that magic, that beyond the boundary feel to it.
0: Well, you see, I mean, as someone was saying to me the other day, it's this thing that no one goes beyond the boundary, as you say. And uh, as I say, I think uh, when you go and look at at, at all those peripheral things, I think it produces a certain warmth and it produces a certain reality for uh, the casual listener. And I think the casual listener is terribly important. I mean, the, the devotees, the cricket devotees are always going to listen. But the people who turn on, in, or it's turned on in the car, and they have to listen. And but after 10 minutes, they're addicted. And it is because of the, the silly things about pigeons and about cranes and whatever that probably um, hooks them in. And, and things don't happen today, which I think is sad. But on the other hand, uh, there's nothing worse when old farts like me say things ain't what they used to be. Uh.
2: Henry, if you do, in, in Over and Out, you suggest that um, One Day Cricket had an influence on the format of TMS and on the format of commentary generally. Um, one day, particularly T20, uh, in Test Cricket, you had the, so to say, the leisure and the structure to bring in the um, the buses and the birds and the atmosphere and so on. Um, in One Day Cricket, you are under... All the commentators are under much more pressure just to get the events in.
0: Well, of course, and there's no room. There's no room to to, to throw it around in one day cricket. I mean, you've got to be up with it. It's it's, it's so much a scoreboard game. The, the, The total score, the individual scores, the overs, the overs, the overs, terribly important how many overs bowlers have got left, how many overs the team has got left. All these statistics have to be put in, which they don't in Test cricket. Therefore, when you've got a fast bowler bowling in Test cricket, you've got so much time between deliveries that he walks back to talk, to be discursive. Whereas that time disappears in one-day cricket completely, because fast bowlers don't go back all that way and so you, you've got less time, and, and, and commentary has to become uh, different. And when you listen to it, 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 it and it, it gets really exciting, it does become a bit of a screaming match, but then it's the nature of the beast, isn't it? I mean, I, I think One Day Cricket, T20 particularly, splendid. It was designed as a financial palliative, and as such, it's been brilliantly successful. Just don't call it cricket. I mean, as long as they leave Test Cricket alone, but of course, one day cricket, the very fact has altered test cricket enormously because you never today get those, or practically never, you get those long five day draws which come really rather pointless. But all test matches almost end in three or four days. And that happens because batsmen, because of the one day influence, can no longer bat time. I mean, when, I mean, okay, um, Zach Crawley at 267, but whether he actually is one who can serious about time. We'll wait and see. I rather doubt it. Uh, Alice cook about time, but um, Joe Root can't. Have a look at Joe Root getting out all the time for
1: fifty-three. Henry, it's, you've you've given us. I know. I speak for everybody. You've given us so much pleasure over the years that uh, I, it's a joy to have you on this uh, show because just to hear your voice lifts the spirit. And to hear the stories, you know, the very rich life you've, you've lived is
0: marvellous. May I say thank you to both of you, and I only wish I could it's a bit early to start raising a glass of red, but I can do that later.
2: Henry, it's been a joy listening to uh, your experience of cricket and uh, listeners who want more of it can find it in uh, your book uh, Henry Blofeld's A to Z of cricket.
1: So uh, thank you very, very much, and it's goodbye for
0: me peter o'born in a very sunny west london
2: goodbye for me richard heller too
0: and i say thank you both very much indeed great fun